Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said, once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we're in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on, and it can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to dig into the games that my guests and I enjoy playing, to talk about big industry events, and to uh, just talk to some of the people who create these games. Now, I do know that I that the intro to this show does tend to lean into the fact that this show would probably talk about a lot of games. And it has. And it will. But we have had an unbelievable uh, amount of feedback recently from listeners asking for more bolt-action content. So I am going to continue that uh, with something that I think is really cool, and I'll explain what it is in a second. But uh, I did want to explain, starting out, that I will be going back to look at other game systems very soon, and I will be doing more bolt-action content. So hopefully that will keep you, the listener, happy. Uh, please stay till the end of the episode if you would like to give feedback on what you would like to hear, if you want, if there are particular game systems that you would like me to cover, or if you would like me to continue on the bolt action train, please do uh, let me know uh, by messaging the Cast Dice Facebook page. Again, I'll give more details at the end of the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, it is... Oh, we're almost to the new year, aren't we? And there's a lot of excitement about different uh, bolt action things going on. The Soft Underbelly book is out. We have Plastic Italians in the wild. Uh, there are all kinds of exciting things going on in the bolt action universe. But we always tend to look at things uh, in bolt action based on World War II. And given that it's a World War II game, that's not surprising. However, we have talked a couple of times in the past about perhaps alternate history themes to bolt action. Now, I'm not talking Weird War. I'm not talking Conflict 47, although I do love that too. I'm talking about actual slight deviations to historical events that actually happened. Now, as an American who moved to Australia, God, forever ago... Uh, I went and visited Darwin uh, about five or six years into my living here, and I was shocked to go to a museum in Darwin to discover that Darwin was actually attacked in World War II. I'd always had the impression that Australia was fairly far away from a lot of the fighting that had actually occurred in World War II. And of course, this was before I started playing bolt action and did some more research, but Due to propaganda purposes, it was not widely spread that Australia was actually bombed and in some cases attacked um, via different means uh, during World War II. And our guest today has taken that idea and has just run with it and has created something that I think is absolutely fantastic and really value adds to the bolt action community. So longtime war gamer and listener of the show, and friend of friends, and just all-around rad guy, Adam Stone is joining us today to talk about a really cool new PDF he's been working on. Adam, man, welcome to Cast Ice. Thanks, Brad. Good to be here. Mate, the invasion of Australia. Now, if you want to listen, guys, at home and follow along while we're doing this, if you go to Pete West's website, Bolt, Alt, A-L-T, Action, 
and you go to the uh, army list section, uh, the most recent PDF that you can download for free is the campaign, the invasion of Australia PDF. And Adam, that has been uh, sort of the bee in your bonnet for a while. I opened this and looked at it a little while ago because you sent me some things prior to its release. But now having looked at it as the quote unquote finished beta product, my God, like this has more content than some campaign books. It is fantastic. How did you get started on such an epic undertaking? Not only do you have army lists, you have missions, you have background material, all for a what-if question of what if the Japanese actually invaded Australia during World War II. And that isn't a completely out-there concept, is it? No, no. It was, uh, I guess, the gen- the genesis uh, of an uh, invasion and something like that really starts sort of back in the early 70s for me when I watched uh, The Longest Day, mm-hmm. um, which is a... Uh, for me, one of the, the great war films and certainly inspires a lot of bolt action sort of thoughts of these days. Mm-hmm. Um, said it started my fascination with, with an amphibious landings, paratroops, of course, uh, coastal defenses. And, um, and in, and then this particular project, it, it, the Genesis was, was almost exactly two years ago. We were in, um, my wife and I were in Perth for a catch up with family and, and had a wedding anniversary. And, and, and we stayed in a, a really nice hotel for our wedding anniversary, which was an old, the old treasury building. Um, one of the original buildings uh, built in about 1900 or 1880s, whatever it was. And I remember walking have, after having catch and lift, walking to our room and sort of looking down this stairwell, which was one of these grand old stairwells and, and and then looking at the, the walls of this place, which are about 18 inches, two foot thick, and I'm thinking, this place would be a, an absolute horror of a place to try and defend because I guess being a lunatic war gamer, my, my mind is always at that sort of like, what if, you know, how would I play this in a war game? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it sort of looking, started to look around Perth in relation to some of the older buildings that might have been around back in the day. And... Uh, and then I remembered that, you know, Rottnest Island has got some fabulous uh, 9.2 inch guns, coastal defense guns, which look pretty awesome. And then it does, as right? I, it, that, that really planted the seed. And then from there, it was, I, I sort of Googled, and I was aware that later in the war, particularly around about 1944, there was one of the largest, if not the largest submarine base was running out of Fremantle. Um, and all the, those submarines going up to Japan and destroying their uh, the fleets and their, their their transport ships and the like and making life really difficult. And I knew there was a fortress at Fremantle. Um, and so as I researched into it and then sort of Googled fortress Fremantle or coastal defences within Fremantle, it sort of opened up um, hearing about uh, the the... I guess the defences and the sort of the the concerns, particularly in 1942, uh, about the potential for a Japanese invasion. I mean, we'd had the Darwin raids. We'd obviously had the submarine raids mm-hmm. uh, in uh, in Sydney Harbour, which sank the Cuttable. And uh, back in the early 90s, I actually worked with a bloke who was a young fella in Newcastle at, um, during the war, and he, he remembered as a boy. Uh, one of the Japanese submarines which surfaced and fired a few shells into Newcastle. 
So oh, I was, wow. I was aware of some stuff happening around uh, around the period, and um, and and as I sort of went down the Wikipedia page, I sort of went discovered that concerns within Australia were so great that they they set up a third corps over here run by uh, General Sir Gordon Bennett. Um, and it was sort of like once you start in that rabbit hole and then you start thinking about all the various bits and pieces, you sort of discover more and more and 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 looking for other sort of stuff in terms of because yeah, you read a number of books about their potential for invasion of Australia and what they would have done. There were some, I think, tentative plans drawn by an ad, a Japanese admiral or general um, that was looking at Darwin, but then it would would have necessitated something in the order of like 20 divisions or something outrageous. Um, and, and then I picked up a book by John Vader, which I think was written in about 71, which was called The Battle of Sydney, uh, which was a fairly lightweight book, which sort of skipped through and sort of they dashed down the coast of Queensland and fighting um, uh, and having a battle in Sydney. And I thought, oh, that's pretty good, but but fairly unrealistic, considering the majority of the Australian military forces and Americans were, were based out of Sydney and Brisbane and all that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and but given the concerns for, um, uh, you know, the set, you know, if, they, if it was serious enough to set up an entire corps, I thought, well, there must be something in this thing about WA. So that started me on my research and it was sort of like kicking Kicking over various cans and then uh, mm -hmm. discovering that once you sort of, I forget the um, what the toy is where you sort of kick it over and all of a sudden it splits up into two and then it, it then splits up into three. Um, it, it, it's sort of like it's like a rabbit hole of, of various bits and pieces. And then I sort of, yeah, discovering things about the Australian Army. I mean, I'd had the, the Osprey book on the Australian Army in World War Two. And they mentioned, you know, the, the overall Australian military. And then they went, and then yeah, there's the AIF, that which we're going to concentrate on, did all this other stuff. And then you're going, hold on, but what about the, the, the light horse? What about these other units and things like that? And they went, yeah, there's none of that. Um, <laughs> it was like this rabbit hole. And the more I kept looking about it and looking into, and thinking about sort of like, oh, if, I would, if I was to invade Australia and I thought, or, or at least have a raid, then I'd probably do it in Perth because it is so isolated. Yeah, it's so far away from uh, any military action because it was all happening up in uh, Guadalcanal, uh, New Guinea, and, and looking and looking to push into um, a hold off and initially, and then sort of push up into New Guinea and those sorts of things. And then obviously in the Pacific, it was all happening in. Uh, with the Pacific Island hopping campaign, but I was thinking, well, Perth's isolated. If it's it's, it's serious enough to have a, a massive submarine base, it would open up potential for um, another base in the the Indian Ocean. Um, so I reckon, and if WA, if the Australian government was concerned enough to set up this core, then there might be something in it. Um, so that started the genesis, and then um, and I was sort of scribbling away notes as I was catching up with family and sort of inventing and thinking about all these crazy ideas mm -hmm. um, and thinking about what units I would like, because there's nothing out there at the moment where you could have uh, some of those unique Australian vehicles, the Sentinel tank, um, 
the uh, like the two types of carry, the two pounder and the three inch mortar carry, which were unique. Um, you can see that I've seen the pictures of the two inch carry, the two inch shady tank carrier um, for many years. They get, oh, that would have been great. They designed it for the desert, but obviously it was over by the time they had it, and then it only stayed in Australia. Uh, and then I guess part of this discovery, I discovered the two armored cars. Um, the Rover which, is wild looking, right? <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's, you got the mobile slit trench. It's got such a great name. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, oh, I want, I want to play with that sort of stuff. And then sort of like, and then you've got the, the light horse with their unique, you know, slouch hats with the, with the, the feathers in them. And again, this is, this is a good looking force. And, but there's nothing here that, um, that's out there that could be used in any way. So that's sort of, well, I want to play with that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking who would do it. Um, and that led to thinking about, okay, who would be the, you know, the Japanese obviously, but with the army being so caught up in, in uh, New Guinea and, and Guadalcanal and those sorts of places, um, it would be a, if anything, a naval operation. Um, so as I kept thinking about these things, it, it, it just kept on spinning ideas and I was losing sleep. Um, just thinking about everything and sort of the ideas just wouldn't roll, roll away. And then I thought the only way that it was going to, um, <laughs> anyway, that was going to stop is if I actually write something myself and put it together and then sort of see if it can come together. And then I had some pauses cause I thought I'd wait for the Stalingrad book and I'd wait for some of the other, the, the later D-Day books, which would have city fighting as well as amphibious landings and looking at their scenarios and some of their background and things. So there were some pauses, um, but yeah. And even after about 18 months and particularly with COVID not being able to go anywhere, it was sort of like, well, this is where I'm going to put some, put some work into this because the idea wouldn't go away. I mean, sometimes if you crazy ideas is, as time goes by, you think, oh, I reckon I'm, yeah, that's a bit silly. I won't do that anymore, but this was an idea that just wouldn't roll away. So I thought I'll yeah. stick with it. Mate, clearly a lot of work has gone into this PDF. As you said, I guess COVID gave you the time to uh, to to get it all on paper. Uh, just I want to touch on a few things you said there because you you've laid out a lot of the footwork of what I'm going to be asking you about later. But I mm. think it's important, uh, for, especially for our non-Australian listeners, to understand the context. Now, I have joked on this show that Australia is largely. Uh, a handful of cities around the outside coast of a country that is otherwise just desert and Mad Max in the middle. Now, there is a city in the middle, Alice Springs. Uh, It is small, but a large number, especially the biggest cities, Melbourne, of course, where I am, Sydney, Canberra, you mentioned Newcastle. If we then go up to Brisbane, the Gold Coast, travel up all the way to Darwin, it's almost like the East Coast of the United States, where as you go up, you have those big port cities, which often are the capitals of each state that on their way up. Of course, we have South Australia, which is sort of straight down the middle at the bottom, a little bit more to the right, which is um, the capital of South Australia, or uh, sorry, Adelaide is there. Uh, but then if you go sort of left of that, you don't really get anything other than Perth and Fremantle, which are essentially the same place. So yep. there, I have been to Perth many times. My wife grew up there. And so 
to look at that, I mean, yes, there are towns and there are um, smaller cities along there now, but particularly during World War II, Perth was very isolated from the rest of the country. So is and given how many American forces were brought through Australia on their way back up to fight uh, in the rest of the Pacific, a lot of those soldiers came through Melbourne and Sydney, again, East Coast. So a lot of, and there was a lot of support and infrastructure set up in those areas where Australian military was naturally set up. And there was a lot of military buildup in and around Darwin and just south of there. But again, we're talking sort of north, south, east, but not necessarily west. And of course, you're talking about the, the naval base in Fremantle, um, particularly around the sub base. Now, if the Japanese were looking to come in, and get a port and get a foothold um, where they could just unload materials and then expand out from there. It seems to me that Perth would be the likely candidate of an attack. And I think that you focusing on that um, tactically makes sense. And that's based on actual research as well, not just armchair speculation, right? Yeah, it's. It, I mean, Perth still is one of, you know, considered the most isolated uh, city in the in the world, um, because there there is vast differences or vast uh, distances between yeah. you know, Adelaide and sort of even heading up to Darwin, and then some of those, even some of the the smaller towns like Albany, um, on the, uh, which is sort of like said the southwest of Western Australia, is still five hours drive from Perth, um, and. The, I mean, my thinking was was it. I mean, the, I knew there was the Australian government considered, you know, considered to be a very serious possibility, which is why they set up their third corps. Um, but in terms of why would the Japanese do that and why would they sort of attack that, I thought, well, there's there's you know having access to the ocean or maybe you know even the potential of running a base out of uh, Western Australia just opens up the entirety of uh, the, the Indian Ocean up, they wouldn't have to sail through the uh, sail through the Indonesia uh, archipelago, mm-hmm. um, and then that would open up to sort of like causing problems for people coming around um, Africa, or even potentially sort of opening a threat up to the Indian um, the subcontinent there. Which, which even though that's extrapolating in a long way, and the Japanese never seriously considered that, um, that was kind of like well. These are reasonable justification for saying they would do that. Um, and, and the other thing was, was again, disappearing down my rabbit hole of reading was that by after 1940, early 1942, where they'd used in, in Timor, by heading towards the end of 1942 and into 1943, uh, the Japanese were looking at just putting their disbanding their special naval landing forces and just putting them as island garrisons um, and, and sort of like fortress garrisons in sort of like Tarawa and all those sorts of places. Um, so, and with the army getting bogged down in Guadalcanal and then de- demanding all the resources for Navy, I thought, well, there's no way the army would be involved. So, and given I, I knew about the, the, the antagonism between the army and the Navy and that, I, I sort of think, well, here's an opportunity to sort of combine that antagonism, make it a secret from the army. And then while they were sort of like, everyone's 
entirely focused on what was going on with if you know the left hook if they did like a short sharp jab around to the right hook in in wa there was almost nothing there um to stop them um and they'd have a bit of a free reign the probably one of the challenges in that thinking was okay that would be it i can i can justify or create some sort of noise about having uh an, an amphibious landing i thought i want to have some paratroops because i love them mm -hmm. um, and i thought okay that that that's how sort of working out what sort of forces they would have and then the difficulty says okay they would do that but how would they then leave what would be the what would be the reason for them to 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 actually then get out of there rather than being sustained because obviously the rest of the war wasn't going to go very well for japan with the immense resources of the uh, the americans mm -hmm. um and then and then the, the demand for sort of like splitting the resources we need all those forces back to for the main effort because we're getting pushed back here so it was a how was i going to end it was probably the problem i stuck with um for a long time it was my friend george that sort of came up with an idea that said okay the emperor could order them i said oh, okay that's probably not a bad idea and sort of and then sort of the the, the pretext for that would be that because the japanese navy had, had stolen um some of the type 92 tankettes which i threw in there because i've got a model of one of those they look great and i wanted mm -hmm. to use one um but they were army things in china and then i thought well here's an opportunity to come up with some sort of pretext for sort of the army then complaining seriously to the emperor and sort of he orders them to disappear so that was kind of like a helpful point um uh, and then it was sort of like okay so it wouldn't be a full-blown invasion um because that would take up uh, a massive amount of resources but what i was thinking then was because i again through further reading i've discovered that it was actually one of the japanese admirals was uh in in discussions with the italians and the germans about the potential um invasion of malta uh so they were already in that sort of thinking about wild and crazy ideas mm -hmm. and then uh, it was only, I think, a few months before uh, my the date I picked that the British had had that disastrous raid on Dieppe. And that kind of started the ball thinking about, okay, it doesn't need to be a full-blown invasion, but more of a, uh, a, a reconnaissance in force um, just to see what happens. Because I'd always had a, a theory that if through through because of the bombings because of the in darwin because of the air raids and submarine activity pretty much around the country because of you know the big raid on sydney the australian public was was in a fair state of panic and i visited the Fremantle army museum and they had a little section about the, the home front there and i remember reading something about if if there were ever any reports of any japanese troops landing anywhere in australia there were housewives in sydney that were threatening to commit suicide and all sorts of terrible things. So it was, so my theory was, even if the Japanese had landed in Broome and take, you know, landed a platoon in Broome and, and seen, taken a few photographs of them marching down the street with, with the Australian signs and they're obviously on the Australian mainland, that would cause an immense amount of panic. It would. Uh, huge propaganda victory um, and, and uh, a huge, uh, psychological victory um and potentially you know the australians would panic and then you know draw resources from other areas where they might be needed more so 
that was that was kind of the thinking. But then I said, putting my bolt action head on, it was sort of like, I want to have all these funky Australian vehicles. I want to have um, the ability if I'm going to have all these great tanks and and vehicles, it's like the Lee Grant tank. We had quite a lot of them. I think we almost had 800 in Australia by the end. Of course, they never went anywhere. Um, but it was sort of like, well, if I'm going to have all these great Australian vehicles, I actually want some sort of tank battle. So the Japanese force is going to have to be mm-hmm. sufficiently large enough to to have that. So these these wild mixings of ideas and throwing things is is kind of where it went. And and the idea of of landing in Perth and and Fremantle um, was uh, an obvious one as the major city within Western Australia um, and huge psychological disruptor potentially could have, um, if they decided to run a base out of there, that could have caused all sorts of strategic problems. Of course, the lines of communication back to uh, Japan and trying to get through the archipelago might've been difficult, but then given that the Australian government had sort of, and, and MacArthur had this sort of like this, this mythical Brisbane line philosophy where everything North of it, they were just going to sort of, okay, you can have that bit and we'll withdraw back. My feeling was this, if the Japanese did land on Perth, I said, oh, well, yep, you can have that. There's nothing between you and us except desert mm-hmm. um, and overextended your lines of communication, all that sort of bits and pieces. So that's my reasoning. And then the all of that mix was trying to put that in order and come to uh, um, make, make some sort of sense of it. Yeah. As I said, man, you've put so much time and thought into this. And one of the other things that I have not mentioned, but I probably should, as I'm scrolling through this PDF, not only do you have a ton of detailed maps that you very helpfully labeled, so I know what I'm looking at, which is really nice, uh, which is something you don't always get when looking at his <laughs> history books. Uh, you also uh, have a crudload of pictures of not only the vehicles, not only the units, but you have just a wealth of historical uh, photographs in there that you can really use when building these forces and when sort of envisioning what the battlefields would look like and what these places are that you're talking about. It is incredibly uh, helpful if for anyone who's interested in actually putting this on the tabletop. Um, Now, I could ask you about each and every unit and each and every army list and the the, the armies that you've put in here, and we could be here for hours, literally (laughs) hours. So let's do maybe a pulled back view and talk about some of the units and uh, theater selectors and um, different armies that you've included in here. Let's start with the Japanese. Now, you have given us the uh, Special Naval Landing Force paratroop list, both the unit and a theater selector. Um, Now, that is just, if I'm reading it right, is just a rehash of the Japanese paratrooper unit from the book, but you give us an actual uh, accurate uh, theater selector to run that force as if it was dropping in and fighting in uh, this battle. So can you talk to us a little bit about the Japanese paratroopers? Because I know you're keen to, but also uh, for those wondering, you can get those models from, uh, there is a line of naval paratrooper models made by Company B, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Uh, talk to us a little bit about these guys. Yeah, well, I, I, in in sort of coming up with uh, 
who who the opponents were going to be and what the world operations they were going to conduct. Um, it was it was one of the starting points was was really picking units that I, I would like to see. Um, the uh, I mean I've been a huge fan of paratroops ever since watching uh, the Longest Day and mm -hmm. particularly um, a bridge too far. And I think I've got at least four paratroop forces, <laughs> British and American, German. Um, I don't have Italian or Japanese yet, but uh, you can. Is this that that'll come? But it was it was sort of, but I'd always loved that concept of uh, landing, and then it, I guess, yeah, the British glider landings at Pegasus Bridge. I thought it wouldn't be awesome to have like a, a Japanese ability to uh, have some sort of coup de main and then sort of drop a paraforce, but in a, in a place where they could actually not get wiped out, but actually might make make a nuisance of themselves. So again, it was sort of researching what sort of uh, uh, what what was. What did they have and where, where where they're operating? Did they even have gliders, which potentially could be capable? I mean, it's. I mean, in writing this is a what if campaign. It's a bit like um, some of those historical novels you get. There's a fair amount of truth that's been bent to sort of fit the narrative to kind of make it work. And mm -hmm. but I knew that the Japanese had operated um, in in Timor and had fought the Australian commandos up there, and uh, and that's where the they were fairly active and that was actually a reasonably good land uh, departure point to sort of come down and but to, to fly all the way to Perth was I thought well that's completely impractical although it's arguable it, making it the way to Geraldton was um is impractical as well yeah uh, I thought well that's it was but it was then I discovered that the uh Japanese had like a a a lease or a sort of like the ability to actually make their own versions of the the DC three, the Dakota oh. um, aircraft, which the uh, the Americans used to drop their Paris in in Europe. So the Japanese had a had a license to produce their own version of that. Um, the name escapes me for the moment, and and I and I thought, oh, that's that's pretty cool. And then I looked at what's the range of those things, and I said, oh, that's that actually works to actually land in um, to. To, to theoretically to uh to, to have that airdrop in Geraldton so that was that was quite exciting and then it was um trying to say okay let's take um let's let's extrapolate that and then sort of create that as the scenario and some operations in and around there uh and then it was it was looking at a little bit of um as you say it was taken from the other books because what I didn't want to do I because I've got most of the the campaign books i didn't want to you know disappear to stay too far away from the, the path right uh, and and sort of like be you know one one i don't want to you know reinvent the wheel and also you, there's there's a limit to how much work you want to create for yourself but in terms mm -hmm. of consistency for the bolt action game exactly if, you know if people don't want to create uh these forces um then they can use them where they were used historically but then again you're not all of a sudden I haven't created this monster where you sort of like, you know, you've got a left-handed pistol with a, with a bent barrel that can only fire around corners on this one <laughs> theoretically. And you're going, well, that, that would be too far. Yeah. Uh, a bridge too far to, so to speak. Exactly. Um, right. Well, it also and, opens the door for, and what we've seen sometimes uh, when people create new units or theater selectors is in their, enthusiasm for a project 
they sometimes cherry pick the best rules or cherry pick the best uh, units, creating maybe a theater selector. And so what ends up happening is you can sometimes end up with very lopsided forces uh, that might be too good to take on the bolt action uh, tabletop that may not actually, you know, it may represent the unit on the tabletop, but sometimes, you know, we, we like to give our favorite units, uh, maybe our favorite rules or rules that we think appropriately match, even though maybe they don't always. And you end up with things that don't always work on the tabletop, either because they're too good or not good enough. Um, and I think you've, in trying to stay consistent with the bolt action universe throughout this PDF, um, I went through the units going, yep, 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 that makes sense. And it it is very consistent with what we've seen in other bolt action books. I don't think people are going to be able to take this and then create some evil monster if that is their uh, intent. But, you know, you're still able to get a fun game or a fun fair game if you put it on the tabletop, if that makes sense. Yeah, and the other thing was, I mean, it's like the amphibious landing rules and sort of it was, I mean, I've taken stuff directly from Bolt Action, from um, uh, from Warlord, because it, it, it was that consistency. I mean, a lot of people have put a lot of thought and a lot of hard work into this and sort of, I thought, well, if I point say, well, that's that's a standard, that's pretty much what's in the, the D-Day books, that what was in the, on their web, their, uh, their inf- article, information articles and things exactly. like that. That, that's sort of something I don't need to try and create something completely different. I just take what's standard and try and make that work for what I what I'm doing because this is really about the the operations for some fun. And in terms of some of the forces, it, it, I, I I was looking at some of the manufacturers of who makes what. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, with the uh, I was aware of the the company B uh, make their Japanese Navy paratroops, um, and I was sort of and then seeing what they had and then making sure I put those in this. There's still a couple of bits that they don't make for the SNLF, but they do make for the army paratroopers. Um, but obviously I'll, to suit my theme, I wasn't going to get any of the army stuff. Um, but the other thing was, for example, with the, uh, I think it was the American Naval crew. Um, I was particular in terms of the, the, the listing of what, what figures are available. I said, okay, like they're CBs. They got sailors with rifles and submachine guns. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I'm going to create my list because obviously these are sailors that around there, there's going to grab a rifle and sort of like going to get stuck in. Um, so I kind of created my list around the fact that, okay, they make four submachine guns and so many riflemen and one heavy machine gun. So that's what's the list is going to be based around what sort of some of these, the figures that are already available. Um, so it made it people easy. So if I get one of them and one of them, those packs, one of those packs, I can make this squad and I don't, it, it's it's about finding not having these special figures that nobody makes and sort of you know, my imaginations run too far wild with me exactly. um it was about making that work and then and and with a lot of the the forces i mean apart from some of the unique vehicles i've uh, been pretty lucky i mean it was during last year that eureka came up with the the australian home guard figures i just mm-hmm. went oh, i'm getting all of those there's my volunteer defense corps um there's this, and they make some fantastic Japanese and Australian jungle figures, as well as Warlord, of course. And then the plastic sets are fantastic. Um, you know, the, you're looking at the militia forces, and you see the uh, the Commonwealth box with the slouch hats and in their shorts, absolutely perfect in the warm summer 
for the warm weather you get over in Perth. Um, so it was kind of looking at what I could get and then sort of, again, not, not being too creative. And I was lucky in that uh, and get of the five unique vehicles for the Australians, you can actually get three of them uh, or at least two of them, uh, the Sentinel tank and the, the, the three inch mortar carrier. Um, so start some, as I discovered, there was stuff available. I thought this is actually again, built on my excitement to build it. Um, so that was the, uh, one of the, for the Japanese para that was sort of like, that's what they'll do there. And of course, if, it depends on how people want to extrapolate their campaigns or their gaming systems. You can then say, okay, they've captured the, uh, the, the airfield at Muyanuka, um, which I, rather than having, you know, air base Geraldton or whatever it might've been, I thought Muyanuka is a good Australian name. Everyone loves a good Australian name. Um, I thought if, if potentially they've got this, then have this battalion or so of troops, which they could then, fly from Muyanuka then reinforce any potential operations in and around Perth as well. So there would be some sort of strategic reason for capturing that airfield. Um, uh, so yeah, it was, uh, that's, that's kind of how it built. And then it was trying to find all these bits and pieces and sort of like, sort of like in a big bowl of like fruit loops and sort of like get all the blue ones together and get all the mm -hmm. green ones together. Um, that's kind of the genesis of that. Nice. Well, you not obviously we've talked about the Japanese paratroopers. Um, you have included rules for uh, Japanese gliders and Japanese landing vessels, the Daihatsu. Yep. Um, you also have some Japanese naval landing forces, uh, obviously not the airdrop ones as well. So that, yep. I mean, that is really inclusive on one side. But that doesn't even scratch the surface of what you get on the other side. Can you talk us through some of the lists and some of the units that you've included? Now, we've talked about some of the vehicles, but just infantry-wise, you mentioned sailors. Let's talk specifically about what theater selectors uh, people can find in this PDF to run on the Allied side. In terms of the selectors, I mean, in discovering, I mean, I should start, I should mention right, probably right now that um, one of the some of the key key uh, books or the information that I found was was a series of uh, books written by uh, Graham Mackenzie Smith. Um, he'd written three, uh, particularly three key books: Defending Fremantle, Albany, and Bunbury, the Australian Unit Guide of the Australian Army, nineteen thirty nine to nineteen forty five, and Australia's Forgotten Army: uh, Ebb and Flow of the Australian Army in Western Australia, nineteen forty one to nineteen forty five. Yeah. Um, without his works, and uh, they're, they're, I'm lucky enough to live in Canberra at the moment, and the National Library has all of these things. I was able to um, drop in there and, and have a look at them. Uh, without his works, I probably wouldn't have uh, got anywhere near as far as I did with the, with the whole book, because particularly his Australian Unit Guide, that lists every unit in the Australian Army, um, if you want to hear about a, you know, a, new, a nurses unit or a communications unit, as well as the, uh, I guess, the force of arms units of the artillery and the, the tankers and the infantry, uh, it's all in there um, with some dates about where they were and what sorts of things they did. So as I was looking into the Australian Army, it, it was actually quite confusing uh, trying to work out because um, the Australian Army, you could almost say, was comprised, comprised of four different elements. You had the AIF, which were 
the, the Australian volunteers that volunteer to fight overseas, which is these are the guys that went to Western Desert, these guys have fought in Syria, these are the guys went to, to New Guinea and the like. Um, and they're the ones that you, they're the ones you generally talk about. Then there was, of course, the, uh, the Australian mil militia divisions, and some of that was quite confusing because they've got some, you know, some regiments like the City of Perth Regiment, the Victorian Scottish Regiment, the Footscray and Pran Regiments, and again, that's pretty awesome names. But then I was sort of, again, as I sort of peeled away all the layers, I was discovering that Fourth Division wasn't a regular army division as as you normally think of it. This was again more of a militia unit. And then as I looked at other things, it was like, so apart from those militia units, which provide, you know, second division, fourth division, those, those sorts of things, you had things like garrison battalions. And I'm trying to work out, well, what's the difference between a militia division and a militia garrison battalion? And apparently these were the things that um, they would have, the, they, they garrison battalions were the, the guards at, at Kaura, uh, where you had the, the, inf the famous Japanese breakout of the, the prison camp in Kaura mm -hmm. uh, with the tragedies there. And these were the guys that would, would man a lot of the, um, uh, some of the coastal defense uh, sites, uh, whether the, the anti-aircraft guns or, or sort of some of the lookout sort of sites. So they were a separate organization as well, which were kind of militia too. And then that, and that flowed into the volunteer defense corps, uh, which was the, the equivalent of dad's army. Um, mm -hmm. And so it was sort of, and as I peeled away all the layers, I'm discovering all these bits and pieces. And then I was sort of struggling to go, well, because there's, there's, I think, more than one 11th battalion. Well, it'll be second, 11th, and then there's the 11th. I, it is very confusing. So, mm. um, and I'm, I, I do not profess to be an expert on these whatsoever, but I've sort of tried to get enough of the gist of what they are and put it into the supplement to sort of give people an understanding um, that these aren't the guys that generally deployed. Although with the Defence Act, I think they changed, the Australian government changed it in about December 1943, which then allowed those militia divisions, the second and the fourth and et cetera, uh, to actually then deploy overseas. Um, so they're the, that was the construct of the army. And then it was looking at units like the 10th Light Horse, which would come under the, um, uh, I guess, the part of those militia divisions. They were, they were very, they had, you know, fought at uh, Gallipoli, uh, one of those famous light horse regiments on a new Western Australia had one of those. It's a very proud regiment. Uh, and I said, I've got to have, I've got to have some sort of light horse. And what they were the, one of the last um, uh, light horse units in the, in Australia to actually have quite a number of horses, uh, which then enables, of course, people to use some of the World War One light horseman figures to, should they want them out there in their lists. Um, so it was about sort of picking those things and then sort of, I knew that we'd had some, for example, commandos, uh, sort of independent commando companies, which had fought up elsewhere. But then I discovered there was a unit that was based in Western Australia, um, but did do some training uh, at various times in, in Fremantle. Uh, and I thought, well, this is this is a useful way to pick it. Mm -hmm. um, so, it and in, so looking at the lists and looking at those um, uh, books, uh, was really sort of like this is how I'm going to break down the units, and then it was look, kind of looking at what the organisation might be for some of those units. And for the most part, the standard or a rifle company or rifle platoon organisation 
I think works for most of them. Uh, and except there's going to be a few little oddities within there that little special things like obviously that you can have some mounted light horsemen, um, some of the uh, anti-aircraft sort of defences. They had a there was a photograph in the uh, the war memorial where you had like a um, a vicar's machine gun on a pintle mount, like with a bit of tin roofing mm-hmm. sort of circle and then sand up pushed against. I thought I've got to have something like that. Um, and again, in terms of, uh, I'm sort of scattergun here because I, 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 it was about finding some of these little gems um, and then trying to work them into the like a base of the standard list, um, and then looking at some of the figures that uh, Eureka did for the Volunteer Defence Corps. Mm-hmm. There was a standard rifle platoon, but then they had they produced these guys in um, like a wheat sack or coffee bag, Hessian coffee bag sort of uh, clothing. Um, looking a bit like uh, the boogeymen sort of things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they made four different figures of that, and I was like, okay, well, these won't be official snipers. And these are a real unit. I've seen a video on, I think, in the War Memorial where I think they're a unit based out of Victoria where all of a sudden you've got these guys that they flip open. Um, it's like, like a grass hill, but then they flip over a lid out of an ambush, and these guys come out in these, this Hessian sacking so they made some figures for that and said, well, if you're going to make the figures, this historical basis for the Volunteer Defence Corps having um, something like that, how am I going to turn that into a bolt action type of thing mm-hmm. uh, other than being specialised snipers? Then it was like, I'll make them marksmen. So they can hide a little bit. They can shoot slightly better. Um, and you've got some funky figures there which look which look out of the ordinary. Um, certainly not as professional as or exciting as the uh, some of the snipers in their ghillie suits that mm-hmm. Warlord make, but but that's kind of like that um, chicken wire and string sort of outfits that we were trying to do in 1942. Um, Definitely. The reason I picked 1942 as opposed to later on, and, and the reason why we've got, I threw in things like the, the, the Rover light armoured car as opposed to the Staghound, which we got later, was that as you if you look as you go progress, certainly into 1943, things started to get a lot more organized. You, you had uniforms for everybody. People had much better training. They were running big op, big exercises in the West. All of a sudden you had more units. Like, and, and as that progressed then the Australian forces were getting better organized and better equipped, the Japanese forces were, you know, as the, the rest of the war was going in, in the Pacific, they were on the, increasingly on the back foot and, and it would become something completely impractical, would become completely impossible. Um, and it was sort of like, yes, you'd get some funky Australian gear, but in, in, the, in any, any later than that, and it was just not possible. And, and from my own experience, um, I knew that if, you know, particularly in and around sort of like 1942, you know, what headquarters would assume and they said, okay, we've set up, headquarters over there we're going to set up third call we've got a core commander we've got all these units doesn't necessarily translate into the fact that yes you've got this battalion but that battalion might only have like a a, a company and a company and a half as opposed to the full battalion and it doesn't have all its equipment because it hasn't arrived yet so what's on paper theoretically in the headquarters in the east doesn't necessarily match what boots on the ground in the west right and Choosing that earlier period kind of helped in that regard because this is the way 
you know, because I can have like a handful of, of uh, sentinel tanks rather than four units because we never had any. I can start having the some of the Lee Grants and some of the Stuart tanks rather than complete units. Right. So it's it allowed for a little bit of that hodgepodge of what was to come without being completely uh, the cupboard being bare. So that was trying to pick a date and also a period where 1942 worked better because the Japanese, they did they did do their uh, lot of submarine operations. They did do their bombing of Darwin, et cetera. So that was, and that was the period of the greatest threat. Um, exactly. So any, any later and, and the Japanese, the fleet would have been, yeah, you're not doing that. We, we've got far greater concerns than that. We'd lost too many carriers. We'd lost too many ships. We'd lost too many men. Mm -hmm. um, so a wild and crazy uh, operation was was just not going to happen ever. Um, so I didn't buy into that. But I wanted, and it was about with the forces and with the list, was trying to balance where, because of course nearly all of the Australian forces are um, inexperienced. Uh, so it was versus, you know, veteran Japanese. Um, so it was at least trying to figure out a way of trying to, to, to get that balance to make it workable as well as fun and, and reasons for, for people would want to do, get involved in that. Exactly. And you've actually included some American forces as well. Some New Hampshire National Guardsmen uh, who were in Perth at the time or in Fremantle. So you actually have units for the Americans as well. So you could run U.S. Navy and anti-aircraft rifle squads and machine gun teams. So, yeah, again, a lot here. So it gives you a lot of choice. And as you said, because there is that variety of Australian unit, there are tons of different models that you could use to create these different armies that you've provided the theater selectors for. Now, I hear a couple people in the background saying, oh, but, you know, Warlord only accepts official units during their events or during tournaments. And I wouldn't be able to, I could build this list, but then I wouldn't be able to play it with some of my friends or an event play to, if it's using the official Warlord rules. Well, sure. But because Adam has done so much work aligning this with what you would already find in the Bolt Action universe... It is, I think, a very easy jump to making this as a quote-unquote counts as. And so you could run a standard reinforced platoon out of the armies of series of books, be it Britain, be it America, be it Japan, and you would be able to run almost every unit that you have here verbatim. Now, this does help you focus what you're researching, and this does help you to find some of those rare resources that would allow you to create a one-off force that may rules-wise resemble something that you might see on the bolt-action tabletop somewhere else, but visually make something new and exciting and interesting. So don't automatically, if you're thinking, oh, I'm a tournament player, I'm not interested in this. This is a great starting point if you want to dig in and create something um, that looks original and you can run. Uh, is that... Do you think I'm appropriately saying that, Adam? I mean, from what I've read, a lot of this ports directly over. Yeah, and that was that was very much at the front of my mind in terms of accessibility to players. Um, the you know it is why having the Warlord Commonwealth set with the Australian hats, our chats on 
now you could say, okay, I mean, I, I, I have one of those forces and I've given them all the slouch hats uh, and because I also have a de- uh, the same sort of figures, but with the, uh, the eighth army plastic box with the helmets on mm-hmm. now, normally in, in action, the Australians would of course wear the tin hat and really the only difference between the two forces would really be like the brown boots. Um, there's probably some webbing difference, subtle webbing differences there as well. But I'd be having had both forces. I thought, and I love the Australian slouch hat. Um, I thought I'll make that, but it, it but I, and how I've painted and based my own was sort of say, okay, I'm going to use it for WA, which is kind of very, it's a very sandy place. Mm-hmm. So then, and so you're going, okay, if I'm going to take this Australian forces, it was very much in my mind to say, you can also use these guys in the desert. You can use these guys in Syria. You can use these same miniatures um, for this early part of when the AOF came to help out in, in, in Kokoda. So there's exactly. the, 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 the multiple uses for that and things like the, particularly the, the Japanese SNLF, uh, you can, the, how I painted base mine was, was for that, that usage where you can use them anywhere. You can use them 1939 through to um, Tarawa and all those other places as well. Um, so, and then throwing in the, uh, the Shinhoto, the, um, the Kami amphibious tank, their, uh, their Dohatsu landing craft, uh, you can use those. And one of the areas I was looking at was, uh, Milne Bay, of course, mm-hmm. uh, they, they used those and they landed some SNLF to then fight the Australians in Milne Bay. So you could use, if you build yourself an Australian and Japanese force, you could then say, okay, I want to do Milne Bay for 1942 using that excellent uh, New Guinea book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't want to stray too far away from uh, those things because you can say, I can take these figures and use them, use them anywhere. Of course, things like the Volunteer Defence Corps with their, uh, that Eureka produced with their uh, um, their, their suits and, and trilby hats and things like that, uh, they are a little bit more unique. But then I wanted to throw in things like the the eighteen pounder gun and sort of having something make it more interesting. You know, Dad's Army um, is obviously a great favourite in the UK with their Sea Lion and Gigant books. Mm-hmm. Uh, thought, and there's also a large community that do very British Civil War, which you could also use those Australian figures uh, for as well, should you wish. So exactly, or other it's not like you're buying the one figure and I've only got one use for them. Um, and I tried to keep that in mind so that people get good bang out of their buck. And conversely, if you already have those models and you've already painted them up, here is a new way to play with them, which is, you know, fantastic, right? Because, it, you know, any chance you get to have a different use for the same army is, you know, a new and interesting way of looking at it. And I love doing that with my armies, where you get to reuse the same models using different rules, uh, and you can really have a good time with it. Well, yeah. Let's let's dig in because we've we've talked about the units. We've talked about some of the things that are included in the PDF. And guys, if you haven't looked at this PDF, again, go to Bolt Alt Action and go to the Army List section and look for uh, Invasion Australia, uh, and you will find um, all the units here. And it's absolutely worth looking through for the pictures alone. This is brilliant. But something that we should talk about further is. You've spent some time thinking about how campaigns work, and you've included 12. Uh, now, what's interesting is a lot of the times with these the missions and campaign books, scenarios are based on historical conflicts. Of course, this is a what if. So you've included 12 scenarios 
that are really cleverly written as if they are historical scenarios, but they feel real. Like, this really does, this isn't far-fetched. Um, this really does feel like a, a regular bolt-action campaign book, uh, especially with the pictures you've included. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you went about choosing those 12 scenarios, given that you weren't technically basing them on quote-unquote real battles, um, but also then the campaign system, because I know you've put a lot of thought into that as well, having spoken to you off air. Yeah, it's uh, the campaign system was something that um, I, I, I thought about a lot. I, for me, uh, as, as we spoke previously, was it was about a having being a slightly older gamer shall we say with my fair share of gray hairs i mm -hmm. many times that you know the a campaign was like the holy grail of war gaming and then you've got some selection of mates and you sort of run a series of battles and, and you come to a conclusion at the end and that was sort of like oh that'd be awesome but of course these days with uh well obviously with COVID sh shutting things down but also um with people not having as much time available because some as they would previously because some of these campaigns can be quite time in, and intensive and take a lot of effort and it, it seemed to me having read a variety of campaigns there was either like a, a ladder one where you play this sort of scenario and that sort of scenario uh and then you'd finish on that scenario and these are the different maps sort of things and then there was obviously the other map based ones which were quite intensive whether you're on hex based maps or or, or, the, or those other slightly freeform ones and i was thinking they're they're good um they've obviously worked very well but i thought well here's this what about a system where uh I, I sort of thought about this lattice sort of mechanism where you could have the game a little bit more freeform where each square or each rectangle on the lattice map uh would represent a a table um, so, you, and then depending on how many people wanted to play, or how many, um, how many how many games you wanted to play, or how you could then expand or shrink it uh, as you require. You could have like a even just like a four square one, or a, a nine, or or however you'd like. And as you progress, you wouldn't necessarily need to run a a particular scenario for that map. You would then just take your forces, and then and and it would be. Um, as what whatever you had to hand and then what you want to achieve for your broader campaign so you could have for example if you create uh in so you've got a middle section you push forward in the middle and then you sort of like just create a bit of a salient um that's going to create so the next map you sort of like your opponent might be able to have three different table edges to which they could come in on mm. so the that map would dictate it more necessarily than having a formalized scenario and the other thing I was thinking about was rather than saying, okay, I'm going to build my force for this necessarily for this, um, this particular battle, this particular map, create a, a force of say 5,000 points, 10,000, whatever you want to create. And then so each, and then you build up your, your army. So I'm going to have a full platoon here and a full platoon here on this table, full platoon. I've got so many points. I've got, for example, four anti-tank guns. Am I going to throw in my 10,000 point force or quarter 5,000 point force? Am I then going to allocate one to each platoon or am I going to keep them in reserve? How am I going to allocate them? So, and having some sort of medical system where you sit very simple, where the infantry can come back 
if you had like a, a larger gun, we had eight crew and the gun gets destroyed. Well, every soldier's a rifleman. You won't get the gun back, but potentially you could get some crew back. So it was really about trying to find a really simple, um, basic, basic sort of concept mm -hmm. to actually create some of these campaigns uh, for, um, or some fun gaming without without stretching the imagination or, or putting needing to necessarily think about uh, all of these logistical support things or taking too much time on that sort of front. Obviously, there'll be some sort of uh, paperwork need to be done, but I tried to keep it very simple. So that was the concept behind that. Yeah, um, I have to admit that hasn't had a great deal of play testing because it's such as the world at the moment, and mm -hmm. hopefully, let it go and see if that works or not. Um, and in terms of the scenarios, I'm a, I'm a Perth boy. I, I grew up there and uh, I um, it went to a number of places. I, I've always been interested in history. Um, so in terms of the scenarios, it was kind of looking at some of the older buildings and sort of having stayed at the Treasury building, I thought, well, that'd be pretty cool. And then on the street corner across, they had the old, uh, um, I think it's the T&G Chambers um, building which was like a, a, a beautiful old building which sadly got um uh bulldozed down in the 1960s because they, they wanted something else but i was looking at these fantastic perth buildings i thought well he's it's, it's a bit it's a postcard to perth and Fremantle because it is a beautiful place and there's great reasons for going there in terms of like the beaches and the wines and the food and mm -hmm. all those places but um but i was looking back at the history and sort of like what was available well, what did Perth look like in the 1940s? And it was a much smaller place. There was uh, some of these, the larger buildings stand out a lot more because Perth was small. It wasn't as, um, you know, three or four storey buildings were kind of the norm. Um, and so picking that and then and looking at Rottnest and having been to, um, you know, looking at Geraldton and, so, and that, that sort of landscape, it was about picking those bits and pieces very lucky that the War Memorial has an enormous array of, of photographs and even some video of Australians um, during the war. Um, and then if you if you go back to Perth, you know, the Google Perth in the 1940s, you discover things had their own trams. So you've got a tram with like Emu, Emu Lager written on it and things like that, mm -hmm. which, which add a nice bit of flavour, a bit of context of it's particularly Australian. Um, and, and in terms of like the Federation buildings, there's a lot of buildings that you can use some of those buildings, which are uh, not too dissimilar to some of the stuff that's around that was built in around about the, the late 1900s and early 20th century. So it's fortunate having a lot of those photographs available and some of the, some of those scenarios were um, uh, kind of based on location and then based on what sort of operations might be happening. Um, mm -hmm. obviously the Swan River is, uh, plays a big part and then being an amphibious landing with the, uh, the landing craft, I thought that'd be pretty awesome to, um, have like some Japanese troops, you know, sailing up and down the river, sort of like doing a bit of a landing here, sort of like storm into the suburbs and sort of like have that sort of conflict and, um, fighting with the, uh, the Australian defenders and the like, um, taking stuff you can use elsewhere and then sort of how can I create that um, and then also thinking about that campaign system thinking about okay 
maybe having like forefoot tables, which uh, you know, I was cognizant of the fact that some players don't have as much table space or, or necessarily needing large forces. Mm-hmm. So here's an opportunity to run some smaller forces, but then you could roll them in a campaign where, you know, you don't necessarily need to have, you know, large amounts of troops or figures, but you could still have a lot of fun in that context. So that was kind of where that, that came from. I do love uh, scenario number nine in particular, saving Mrs. Curtin. Now, uh, the Prime Minister of Australia was the Honorable John Curtin, and he was, of course, uh, he was the member from Fremantle, I believe, uh, from memory. Um, but his yeah. wife, of course, wouldn't have made the trip back and forth from Canberra. Now, again, for, for non-Australians, you have to remember that Perth and Canberra are about as far apart as Washington, D.C. and San Francisco, for example. So with with nothing in the middle. (laughs) Exactly. With nothing in the middle. And, um, you know, getting from one side to the other is not easy. There are limited roads. There are limited railroads. I'm sure you could probably fly back and forth. And they were flying uh, the prime minister at that point. They would have been, obviously. But um, that wouldn't have been an easy trip at that time. So um, she didn't travel as much as he did. uh, And she was uh, often Uh, in Perth more often than she was in Canberra, as you put out in your scenario. So having her as an objective in one of the missions is genius. And I hadn't even like, I hadn't even thought that that would be, that would be a cool mission. But the second I saw that I went, of course, that is a great scenario idea. And yeah, very clever. Lots of fun. Well, I have on that one, I have to uh, give credit to uh, Paul O'Grady. He, um, he, he, been through the uh, the sea lion book, and there was a the kill Churchill mission mm-hmm. within that that he he said was a favourite of his, and I thought, okay, I'll give that a bit of a look. Uh, so that that kind of like sparked a bit of an intention, but obviously, um, I wasn't going to kill Mrs. Churchill. No. Um, and the other thing was, was it was sort of like, how can I, what what's what's what sort of scenario here that I could have that where it was sort of like. Um, have some smaller forces, but sort of like it may, could make potentially make it exciting. Um, so you've got the the layout of the buildings on that one. You sort of like the the Australian player knows which one, uh, the, which building the um, Mrs. Mrs. Uh, Curtin is 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 in, and then they've still got to play. And then there's different op, different places you can actually sort of come in on. And what I wanted to do with that one, obviously the advantages is going to be with the Australian forces because they've picked the their best troops to try and get on with the mission. They know where Mrs. Churchill is, but being a smaller game, and I think it's only about three or 400 points, being that smaller game, you're going to have a lot fewer troops. And so yeah. there's going to be a bit of ducks and drakes between do I'm going to go try and storm into the where I know she is straight away, but that's obviously going to give the, the Japanese player um, a pretty good indication of where to, where to concentrate their forces mm-hmm. as well. So there may be a bit, and you're going to sort of, so there's going to be a little... I hope to play a little bit of ducks and drakes there to sort of play a few mind games on yeah. sort of I'm going to look like potentially play it as if uh, she's in on the right flank, but she's actually in the one in the, in the left. So I'm actually going to send up a, a sneaky little force in there to grab her and in while you're being occupied with this diversion. Um, so hopefully there's there's some there's some fun in that sort of space and mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I thought that would be quite a fun little mission and then trying to find a suitable figure. Um, for Mrs. Churchill, or even one of her daughter, one of their daughters, yeah. um, to, to then, to then uh, have this this rescue mission. 
Um, yeah, man. Brilliant. Fun. Fun. Yeah, man. As I said, that is one, I think my favorite mission in here and there's some great missions in here. I do love a scenario. And so reading through these was a real treat, uh, especially since there's 12 of them. Now, what seems to be the norm with a lot of us uh, when we talk about these conflicts and forces these days is, of course, the miniatures. And you have not only talked a lot about about how you found uh, the miniatures and you used those miniature resources when creating the units in these PDFs and matching those up with history, but you've done a wonderful job at the end of this PDF of actually including a page of links to different web stores and different companies to find the miniatures uh, to to build the units and to find some of those obscure vehicles that are talked about in this PDF, which is super helpful and I think is great. But not only that, you have included a hell of a biography or bibliography at the end of this. If you are looking for more resources to find out more about what you've talked about in the PDF and a list of really helpful websites. And I don't mean a short list. It's like half a page. It's crazy. Uh, this, I mean, clearly the amount of work that you put into this, I mean, just to get the pictures alone, you would have spent uh, countless hours. And then to put all of the history and infuse that with that with a realistic what-if scenario, I, I, I'm just, I cannot say enough how impressed I am with the work that you've put into this, Adam. Again, thank you so much for doing this. It gives... People who have these forces already, a wonderful new way to play the game. And if you are looking for your next bolt action project, this might be, might, I don't know, illuminate a little uh, part of your brain that goes, ah, oh, I want to go down a rabbit hole. And then, of course, you might end up with a force uh, that may start with this. But as you say, you might be able to theme for Milner, a variety of other uh, Pacific, uh, or I guess, North African campaign as well. Mate, thank you so much. I am afraid our time is coming to a close. However, is there anything else that you want to talk about in this? Because, man, again, too much information to, to, to properly cover everything. Uh, but, I, again, so impressed. Well, thanks, Brad. I appreciate those comments. Um, no, I, I probably would say that it, it's... I mean, obviously, if anyone has a look at that and goes a look at the map, and it's basically me scribbling on a pad, um, the technology to produce a decent map is uh, is <laughs> beyond my ability at the moment. Um, it, there's still some areas there that if people want to uh, send me some feedback and uh, some uh, some comment on, I'm still open to that. It's it's not necessarily a fire and forget. Um, I'm still invested in it, um, and obviously, uh, I, I would make you know. If I can improve it in any further way, I'd be happy to. Um, one of the reasons, I mean, I, I I did actually fly it by Warlord Games and said, hey, you guys interested in that? And they said, well, we our next, um, uh, the calendar is full for the next three three years. So I said, that's fine. It's no drama, which mm -hmm. it, it did open up the, the ability to um, uh, give me a lot more freedom to throw in a lot of that stuff at the back, which wouldn't be in a normal uh, uh, campaign book. Right. Um, so I think it's so to just to help people sort of do their research or sort of like to be find some interesting stuff. I mean, more generally within Australia, what was happening on the Australian front during the war isn't very well known at all. Um, there's not a lot written. There's um, uh, there's a lot of. I mean, we we had something like a million people or something some outrageous number in uniform during the war, and a lot of those were on the home front. So there's a lot of stories uh, with nationally that. Uh, that doesn't get a um, 
much recognition. So, I mean, I do encourage people to have a look at it and, and even look at their area. And even, and even though I've based this out of Western Australia, being a, a sand groper myself, um, those people that live in Darwin or those people who are in Queensland or Sydney or Victoria, um, I hope it encourages them to go, oh, that'd be awesome, I could do that, and, and look around their local area and see what was there and then come up with their own scenarios uh, for a bit of fun. Um, so, yeah, I, I encourage people to have a bit of a look and, and let their imaginations run right. Exactly. Especially since, and I, I know I've mentioned it before, but I really do want to draw an underline under this. I am probably not likely to create any force out of this PDF, not because it isn't amazing and detailed, but I am passionate about other parts of the war. But reading parts of this, particularly the scenarios, have given me some really interesting ideas that uh, you know might lead to something down the the track a little bit i'm really it, it, yeah i i was looking at miniatures uh last night after reading this uh, which is always dangerous but um <laughs> it is it is given how uh we don't have a million new resources for bolt action all the time like maybe some other game systems we do get the campaign books and theater books regularly we do get new models uh, and there are n- new great things coming out all the time. But compared to the release schedule of maybe some other game systems, sometimes y- y- we do wait a little while, particularly in the era of COVID. And so to have such a great resource dropped in our laps, particularly for free, it is nice to read and to really get those juices going. Uh, so again, Hmm. Yeah, I'm getting some bad ideas, Adam. You're a bad man, but uh, I love your work. I highly recommend, especially since it's free, right? So, guys, go to Pete West's website, Bolt Alt Action. And again, not only is there this PDF, but there's a ton of resources across that website. But if you go to the Army List page in particular, there are so many great Army Lists that have so many great ideas in them that you can run on the tabletop and might give you an idea on either running one of those armies or run a different army, maybe as a counts as, or maybe it just sparks something in your mind. It's a wonderful resource just to scroll through. Pete's been adding constantly to the webpage, uh, and he I will continue to do so, uh, having spoken to him. I know he's really passionate about it. It's a great resource. Guys, check it out. Adam? Yeah, it was our I guy. have to thank Peter West for uh, kindly putting up this uh my PDF up there for people to access, uh, and and also for his um, his his comments. I gave it to him to do uh, have a look over. Um, so yeah, he's been very helpful. He's, he's obviously uh, does the great stuff in the bolt action community. I could not agree more. The man is sort of the godfather of the bolt action down here slash internationally. As as you guys well know, I'm a big fan. Adam, again, thank you for taking the time to come on and talk about this today. I know you put a lot of time and effort into the PDF, but then taking the additional time to come talk to me about this is great, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Brad. It was a great pleasure, and thank you very much for the opportunity to having about have a chat about it. Man, anytime, anytime you want to talk shop, man, we we can do this. This is good. Ladies and gentlemen, as I did say at the beginning of the episode, again, thank you for listening to today's episode. We are going to continue with other game systems coverage and bolt action sort of hand in hand, both because I'm a very passionate bolt action player, but also because that's what a lot of the feedback has been. 
Uh, if you would like to hear about other particular game systems, and we will be covering some other game systems very shortly with some old friends from the past uh, who have been playing some other games, uh, look forward to that soon. But please do message the Facebook page if you have any sneers, jeers, abuses, comments, ideas, suggestions, or you just want to say happy holidays. It is cast dice c-a-s-t-d-i-c-e and of course if you go to facebook uh, and message the page you are guaranteed a response by me hi my name is brad uh, just remember it sometimes takes a couple hours uh, because i am based in australia and i do teach and so often uh, occasionally i do sleep and uh, but i will get back to you you are guaranteed a response but I guess when I'm talking about when I'm sleeping, it's probably time to call it a day. And if we're going to do that, we've got to talk about what our old buddy Casey always says, which is, when you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope that your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than that, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night.